she caves anytime the left comes after her. Nikki is corrupt. And I love all the attention, fellas. Thank you for that. <laughs> it was knives out for Nikki Haley at last night's Republican presidential debate. Will it stop her momentum? And will any of it halt Trump from becoming the party's nominee? Because, of course, the Republican frontrunner, again, not on the debate stage. Instead, hitting the campaign trail today, Donald Trump is expected to be in a New York City courtroom. The Senate Republicans block critical aid to Ukraine and Israel, demanding tougher new border policies in return. What President Biden says he is now willing to do. CNN This Morning starts right now. Good morning, everyone. So glad you're with us on this Thursday. I'm Poppy Harlow with Phil Mattingly in New York. You're probably up late watching the final Republican presidential debate of the year. Four candidates on that stage clashing on policy, trading some personal insults as well, with time running out to make their pitch to voters before the Iowa caucus is now less than six weeks away. Now, Nikki Haley took the brunt of the attacks from Ron DeSantis and Vivek Ramaswamy over her big ticket donations and her foreign policy positions. At one point, Ramaswamy even holding up a handwritten sign reading, Nikki equals corrupt. Haley's explanation for the attacks, jealousy. And in terms of these donors that are supporting me, they're just jealous. They wish that they were supporting them. But it was the front runner by a mile, Donald Trump, who was again not on the debate stage. He largely seemed to come out unscathed. Let's begin our coverage this hour with Jeff Zeleny. He joins us in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. Morning, good early morning, Jeff. Did the debate, do you think, move the needle? Hey, good morning, Poppy. Look, that needle has been very stubborn and slow to move, but there were several moments of conflict and confrontation, particularly for voters who perhaps are just tuning into this race that they can chew over for the next six weeks before the voting begins. Nikki Haley, of course, and Ron DeSantis continue their feud over who's the most conservative, who's the um, strongest on China. Vivek Ramaswamy, of course, weighed in. Chris Christie said Donald Trump unfit for office, but once again, the man not on stage may have been the biggest winner of all. Nikki Haley at the center of a firestorm as Republican rivals sought to slow her rise Wednesday night during a heated final debate of the year. Her donors, these Wall Street liberal donors, they make money in China. They are not going to let her be tough on China and she will cave to the donors. She will not stand up for you. He's mad because those Wall Street donors used to support him and now they support me. Ron DeSantis furiously tangled with Haley and her newfound support from some big name donors in a bitter battle to become the leading alternative to Donald Trump. The former president continues to dominate the campaign despite thumbing his nose at another debate. You can't defeat Democrat chaos with Republican chaos. And that's what Donald Trump gives us. 40 days before the first votes of the 2024 race are cast in the Iowa caucuses, the sparring among the contenders on stage in Alabama reached a new level of urgency and incivility, particularly between Chris Christie and Vivek Ramaswamy. This is the fourth debate, the fourth debate that you would be voted in the first 20 minutes as the most obnoxious blowhard in America. So shut up for a while. Chris, your version of foreign policy experience was closing a bridge from New Jersey to New York. Yeah. So do everybody a favor, just walk yourself off that stage, enjoy a nice meal, yeah. and get the hell out of this yeah. race. Christie stood alone in issuing a dire warning about the prospect of Trump returning to power. Do I think he was kidding when he said he was a dictator? All you have to do is look at the history. 
And that's why failing to speak out against him, making excuses for him, pretending that somehow he's a victim, empowers him. You want to know why those poll numbers are where they are? Because folks like these three guys on the stage make it seem like his conduct is acceptable. Let me make it clear. His conduct is unacceptable. He's unfit. It was the fiery exchanges between DeSantis and Haley that may have resonated the loudest. Like when he amplified his conservative Florida record and his law banning gender-affirming treatments for minors. I am sick of Republicans who are not willing to stand up and fight back against what the left is doing to this country. And you have other candidates up here like Nikki Haley. She caves anytime the left comes after her, anytime the media comes after her. I actually said his don't say gay bill didn't go far enough because it only talked about gender until the third grade. And I said it shouldn't be done at all, that that's for parents to talk about, it shouldn't be talked about with schools. For much of the debate, Haley receded into the background, standing silent as her rivals piled on, and her long-running feud with Ramaswamy bubbled over again. I don't have a woman problem. You have a corruption problem, and I think that that's what people need to know. Nikki is corrupt. It's not worth my time to respond to him. It was also a night of revealing alliances, with Christie coming to Haley's defense and firing back at Ramaswamy. I've known her for 12 years, which is longer than he's even started to vote in the Republican primary. <laughs> and while we disagree about some issues and we disagree about who should be president of the United States, what we don't disagree on is this is a smart, accomplished woman. You should stop insulting her. Yet Christie and Haley are also on a collision course of their own, with moderate Republicans and independent voters in New Hampshire a centerpiece of their respective strategies. But the first stop in the Republican contest comes in Iowa, where DeSantis is staking his claim on slowing Trump's march to the nomination by whittling away his support to emerge as the leading alternative. It is not a job for somebody that's pushing 80. We need somebody that's younger. We need somebody that's going to be able to go in there and clean house okay. on day one so he, and do it for two terms. So perhaps one of the most notable factors of the debate last evening was the fact that Nikki Haley was standing there taking so many arrows coming her direction and intentionally making the decision. In fact, her aides told us before the debate that she was going to appear presidential and perhaps not respond to all of these attacks. That is the sign of a candidate on the rise. There is no doubt, though, DeSantis got many of his conservative record uh, across. That, of course, is key to Iowa evangelical voters and other conservatives. So at the end of all of this, it's difficult to say that this may have changed uh, many minds, except perhaps the open ones. And as we talk to voters, there are still voters with open minds. So this, of course, will continue uh, the debate. But perhaps the biggest contest of all, at least for Iowa last night, was the University of Iowa-Iowa State women's basketball game. So the question, how many people were actually watching this debate? <laughs> Phil and Poppy. Shout out Caitlin Clark, Jeff Zeleny. We appreciate it. Thanks, fam. So joining us now, CNN political commentator and former senior spokesperson for Hillary, for Hillary for America, Karen Finney is at the table, CNN political commentator Scott Jennings, and our senior political analyst and anchor John Avalon. Good morning, everyone. Good morning, guys. Karen, let me start with you. So, so, so some people this morning saying Haley didn't say a lot. She got attacked all the time. Yeah. Did you think it was a weak or strong debate for her? I thought it was a very strong debate for her because, look, at the end of the day, she needed to do no harm, which she didn't. She held her own. She did a good job responding to the attacks. She didn't get flustered. She did a great job handling Ramaswamy and the one attack where she just kind of said, no, I'm not even going to, 
you know, just treated him like he was, you know, a little fleck of dirt or something, right? Um, and again, she had several moments where she had clear, concise answers. I may not agree with what she had to say, for example, on immigration, but she certainly got her perspective across. And she did something that women candidates have to do, which is you have to show toughness and strength and compassion in different ways than men do. And I think she did that quite well. She also got a pretty strong defense from Chris Christie, who I expected would go after her. She's ascendant in New Hampshire. New Hampshire is critical to Christie. Do we, I think we have that. Can we listen to it real quick? He has insulted Nikki Haley's basic intelligence, not her positions, her basic intelligence. If you want to disagree on issues, that's fine. And Nikki and I disagree on some issues. But I'll tell you this, I've known her for 12 years, which is longer than he's even started to vote in a Republican primary. While we disagree about some issues and we disagree about who should be president of the United States, what we don't disagree on is this is a smart, accomplished woman. You should stop insulting her. I mean, clearly they're aligned on their visceral loathing for Vivek Ramaswamy. But, but why? If, if she's his primary problem in New Hampshire in this kind of second tier of the race, would he defend her like that? Well, I thought two, two things. One, um, it's a signal. I mean, he's running a very narrow campaign to a certain kind of voter in New Hampshire, independents, maybe even some Democrats. And so that's that defending her against someone that those people would loathe, Ramaswamy, is a, is a good tactic. But two, and more broadly, I thought I started to see the outlines of some alliances on the stage, the pre-Trump Republicans and the post-Trump Republicans. And Christie and Haley are obviously pre-Trump, and DeSantis and Ramaswamy are, are post. Now, now Christie sort of disavowed that uh, with uh, Dana Bash after we're saying he's, he's not in league with her, and he actually foreshadowed you know, several weeks of, of attacks that are clashes with her that's coming in the Granite State. Uh, you know, he didn't he didn't sound like a man who was fixing to drop out and endorse her or anything. He, he sounded like someone who was going to stay in. But See, you can I, tell. I, I disagree with you. I disagree with you both on this. I, I think there's a sense that that, you know, this I, was this strategic. Isn't it surprising that Christie wouldn't have gone after Haley because of their jousting for the same vote in New Hampshire? I think. The very fact that is evidence of the fact that I think this was sincere. I think this was just decency. I think it was just for him saying, hey, this is a ridiculous attack. Stop it. And I think we're so oh, not used to seeing no, no, that. No, no. So John, not used to seeing that on the stage that we write it up to some kind of tactical incongruence. John, I assure you that Chris Christie knows that one of the common attacks on women is their intelligence. You know, we see a lot of that for number against a number of women. And he very intentionally said you keep going after her intellect. And he made a point of saying that. I thought that was a play for women voters because he knew that women watching that didn't like that. And just, that's I think not, it's just instinctive. Uh, I think it's, it's decency. Look, God bless New Hampshire and its open primaries. I'm just saying that <laughs> well, guess what? sometimes decency helps. Chris Christie's coming on the program, so we're going right. to ask him what it is. Yes. Ramaswamy in that was, you know, he's aping Trump's attacks on Haley. I mean, he's yeah. done this, yeah. you know, uh, bird brain thing. And that and Ramaswamy is constantly trying to prove to Donald Trump how loyal he is, you know. But so Trump's never materialized for Christie to attack. So Ramaswamy has been a, yeah. you know, a, a stand in for it. So know? stay with us. We got a lot more to get through <laughs> from the debate last night. We'll be back with that in a moment. Well, we've been talking about him. Vivek Ramaswamy unleashing conspiracy theories as well on the stage. They were very out there. He called the January 6th attacks an inside job. Said Democrats support the great replacement theory. Hear how he responds when our Dana Bash pushed back on what he said. And families shed tears of relief reunited after a shooting killed three people on the campus of UNLV. We have brand new information on who the shooter was and his connection to the university. That's next.
more CNN This Morning to come after the break. This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Only Sleep Number smart beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support. Your Sleep Number setting. Sleep Number smart beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. All Sleep Number smart beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Why am I the only person on the stage, at least, who can say that January 6th now does look like it was an inside job? That the government lied to us for 20 years about Saudi Arabia's involvement in 9-11? That the great replacement theory is not some grand right-wing conspiracy theory, but a basic statement of the Democratic Party's platform? Why? Because you sound like an idiot. (laughs) <laughs> um, that's, that's the panelist's job, sorry. That was one of the conspiracy theories, several of the conspiracy theories that Vivek Ramaswamy shared on the Republican debate stage last night. Here's what he told CNN's Dana Bash after the debate in the spin room. If you had asked me three years ago, is there some chance January 6th is an inside job? I would have said that was crazy talk. I would say looking at the facts of the video footage that have come out, Dana, it is shocking that you still haven't gotten a clear answer of how many federal agents were in the field that day. But when you use the term great replacement theory, that is that that, is that is exactly what that. But you understand. But but you understand that 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 term is something that evokes anti-Semitism. It's dangerous. Back with us, Scott Jennings, Karen Finney and John Avalon. Karen, to you on this. (laughs) Why I'm why did he list all of those off? Was that politically strategic at all. And Dana's exactly right. It is dangerous. Not just the great replacement theory, all of those things that he ticked off. Oh, absolutely. I mean, he had that litany sort of ready to go. Uh, look, he went full on Q, Q and on last night and just laid it all out there. It almost felt to me as though he felt he knew he may not get another shot on a debate stage. So let me just put it all out there and try to, you know, whip up the people who actually believe some of those awful things. Um, it was a pretty shocking, uh, I think even Scott would agree, it was a pretty shocking litany. Um, and particularly when it comes to the Great Replacement Theory, which was quite disgusting, actually. It, it, it is. I mean, it's worse than, than, than idiotic. And I think to me, that was the worst answer I've ever heard in any debate because it was so pathetically pandering and frankly disqualifying. Pandering to who, though? P- pandering to a certain segment of the Republican base. And here's how I think, you know, if you look up what he's stitched together, every major conspiracy theory of this century, right, from, from 9-11 uh, to January 6th being an inside job, you know, itself a, a term that usually in, invoked a great replacement theory, and, and then he went on. That is a dog whistle to a certain segment of the Republican electorate that can't, that loves that legitimization they just heard from the stage. And so that's why it's, it's worse than cynical, it's sinister. I, I'm, I'm just disappointed Dana didn't ask him about the moon landing. Because, <laughs> I, yeah, I, 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 I mean, <laughs> there is a segment of very, 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 very online, alt-right, 
types that he is playing for. I don't think it's an electoral coalition. I think no. it's a post. It's obviously a post-campaign, you know, branding coalition or, or whatever. Uh, but it is. These debates have been terrible for him. You know, when we started back in August, he was at seven, eight percent nationally. He's now down into the four range. Uh, he really has sort of plummeted after each one of these increasingly grating, obnoxious, and ridiculous performances. And to stand on a debate stage and use the term inside job, it, it, this is not a man who's playing for the nomination. He's playing for something and, else. And, unless we figure out on the Great Replacement Theory, there have been, I think, three or four shooter manifestos that we've seen, right. I hesitate to use that word, that specifically invoke Great Replacement Theory. So when you're doing that from a presidential debatement stage, there's a body count behind that conspiracy theory. Can I ask, though, he also, there's the fever swamps where this is existing. It's like you got sucked into 17 responses to a tweet down, and all of a sudden you look up and you're like, oh, no. Oh, yeah. this is not where I want to be, <laughs> which is basically the Vic story. But he also attacked transgenderism as a mental health disorder. And the reason I bring it up is because this is a more, I think, frontline Republican issue, or has been. Um, listen to how Chris Christie responded to questions related uh, to it compared to Ron DeSantis. I agree. We should empower parents to be teaching the values that they believe in in their homes without the government telling them what those values should be. And yet, we want to take other parental rights away. As a parent, you do not have the right to abuse your kids. This is cutting off their genitals. This is mutilating these minors. I I think the question here is, one, this is such a small segment of society. Why has it become such a frontline issue for the party? But two, there are real effects here. You talk to, you know, there are surveys that show one in three LGBTQ youth have severe mental health or have mental health issues due to the spike in policies like this. Um, this is backed, the, the care is backed by medical associations. I guess, why is it such an issue but Ron DeSantis has attacked Nikki Haley on it repeatedly. Yeah. It's a, I think there's a perception in the Republican coalition, the Republican Party. We've seen bills attacking LGBTQ youth uh, throughout the country in Republican states with Republican governors. So clearly there is a segment that believes this is mobilizing to parts of the base. Personally, I thought it was disgusting because the other thing we're seeing is that as this conversation has risen, we're seeing higher rates of depression um, and, and suicide among LGBTQ youth. So I think demonizing children uh, as an electoral strategy is really disgusting. But it does, there is a perception uh, that it would mobilize parts of the base. The, the, the facts are that most medical, almost all medical associations consider, the question was about gender affirming care, right? And who should have control, the state, the government, federal government, or parents. And Christie says parents, and you heard what Ron DeSantis said. Scott, most medical associations agree that not only is it okay, but it is medically necessary for some youth to prevent things like suicide. So uh, are you concerned to hear answers like DeSantis and Ramaswamy calling transgenderism, which is a separate issue, a mental health disorder? Yeah, DeSantis's answer is squarely within the mainstream of opinion of the Republican Party. Ramaswamy's answer probably is closer to the center of it as well. Christie, I understand his argument on it, but if you were Ron DeSantis and you were trying to attract, you know, evangelical caucus goers in Iowa, what he said in that whole exchange, there is no doubt that he won that exchange vis-a-vis what really? your message would be and to Chris a Republican Christie's caucus. And Christie's argument <laughs> about big government, 
flat. Flat. Well, it would not work. Parents should well, have he, rights in schools, et cetera, but not on this. Well, no. and you heard what DeSantis said, which is you don't give parents the right to commit child abuse. And so if you just, I, I, if you, if you play that exchange for caucus goers walking into a high school gym on caucus night, I can almost guarantee you who would, who would come out top in a straw poll. It's also yeah. the difference between a primary election answer and a right. general election answer. I think what Chris Christie said would probably float in a, in the general election context, whether or not you. Well, it's an attempt to consistency, right? I mean, yeah. what he's saying is if you're for parental rights and we're for parental rights, I do think there's probably room for a more nuanced debate around some of these issues, particularly with regard to minors. The Economist had a cover story uh, about this. And, and the problem is, is the demonization of a small group of people mm -hmm. who are effectively defenseless. Mm -hmm. um, and and the, the elevation of this into a, you know, a, a civilizational defining issue itself is designed to demonize. But we should also be able to have civil debate about, around the issue of, of surgery you know, with minors. Right. It, it's the elevation right. for purely political purposes exactly. that I kind of get stuck That's on. That's a great way to put it. Stage. Um, yeah. All right, guys, stick around. We have a lot more to get to later in the hour. Also this morning, we are getting new information about the shooter the police say killed three people on UNLV's campus and the emotional message from LeBron James about guns in America. And the presidents of elite universities desperately trying to do some damage control under growing pressure for their response to anti-Semitism and hate speech against Jewish students. What they're saying this morning, that's next. Welcome back. This morning, we do have new information on the shooter who police say killed at least killed three people at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas yesterday. Marquis along the Vegas Strip offering messages of support with the hashtags Las Vegas Strong and UNLV Strong. And hours after the gunman opened fire, community members held a vigil gathering to mourn the lives lost. Lucy Kafanoff is live for us this morning in Las Vegas. Lucy, tragic. Again, another mass shooting in America. Do we know anything more about the shooter this morning? Well, Poppy, police have not formally identified the shooter because as of last night, they were still notifying next of kin. But according to law enforcement sources who spoke to CNN, he is a 67-year-old uh, career college professor who has connections to schools in both Georgia and North Carolina. Uh, in terms of his connection to this university, according to a law enforcement source briefed on this investigation who spoke to the Associated Press, he had unsuccessfully sought to get a job um, at this particular school. Now, all of this on Unfolded uh, early yesterday, shots rang out at around 11:45 in the morning uh, near Beam Hall, which is home to the university's business school. Uh, police say that the shooting started on the fourth floor uh, of the building and went on to multiple floors. The sheriff saying police neutralized, engaged with and neutralized uh, the suspect outside, but not before he killed three people. He injured one individual who was sent to the hospital with a gunshot wound, now in stable condition. Uh, two police officers, uh, law enforcement officers treated for minor injuries and four students suffering panic attacks. And just to set the scene, this was an incredibly busy time at the university. It is study week. Finals were coming up. So a lot of students were right here on campus. Uh, the sheriff said that there were tables set up outside of Beam Hall, where students were playing Lego games and, and eating. And so he said a lot more lives could have been lost were it not for the heroic actions of those law enforcement officers. Uh, the university president telling students, know that it is okay not to be okay. Poppy? Yeah. yeah, that's a really important message. And this coming in Las Vegas, just, you know, years after the most deadly mass shooting in modern American history in Las Vegas. 
Yeah, and that's not lost on anyone here. We're just a few miles from the Mandalay Bay Hotel, where in 2017, a gunman opened fire on that music festival, country music festival, killing 58, injuring hundreds. Uh, LeBron James, the NBA star, speaking out about gun violence in America. Take a listen. The ability to get a gun, the ability to, you know, to do these things over and over and over, and there's been no change is literally ridiculous. It makes no sense that we continue to lose innocent lives and, you know, on campuses, on schools, at shopping markets, and it's it's ridiculous. It's ridiculous, and the fact that we haven't changed anything, um, it's, it's, it's stupid. A staggering 631 mass shootings in America so far this year alone. Yesterday's violence, Poppy, marks the 80th school shooting. Poppy? Wow. Wow. Lucy, thank you very much for the reporting. Well, on the battlefield this morning, Israel claims it has surrounded the leader of Hamas, where the military believes he is now. Also, voters weighing in on who they think won last night's Republican primary debate. One candidate stood out among the rest. We'll tell you who next. Well, today marks two months since the unprecedented terror attack on Israel, and it launched the start of the war against Hamas. It is also the first night of Hanukkah. This morning, Egyptian authorities are opening the Rafah border crossing so dozens of foreign nationals and dual citizens can leave Gaza. Meanwhile, Israeli forces say they have the home of Hamas leader Yahya Sinwar surrounded in Gaza, but they say he is underground. Israel is touting it as a symbolic victory, saying it is, quote, only a matter of time before they are able to get him. It comes as the United States expresses new concern over the number of civilian casualties. Well, back here in the U.S., university presidents from Harvard, Penn, and MIT are under fire following their testimony at a House hearing looking into anti-Semitism on college campuses. UPenn's president saying on social media that she was focused on university policy when she testified before the committee. Listen. A call for genocide of Jewish people is threatening, deeply so. It is intentionally meant to terrify a people who have been subjected to pogroms and hatred for centuries and were the victims of mass genocide in the Holocaust. Policies need to be clarified and evaluated. Now that explanation was in response to what happened on Tuesday. It is a context-dependent decision, Congresswoman. It's a context-dependent decision. That's your testimony today. Calling for the genocide of Jews is depending upon the context. That is not bullying or harassment. This is the easiest question to answer yes, Ms. McGill, yes or no. It can be, depending on the context. What's the context? Targeted as an individual, targeted as, at an individual. It's targeted at Jewish students, Jewish individuals. Do you understand your testimony is dehumanizing them? Do you understand that dehumanization is part of antisemitism? CNN's Athena Jones joining us now. The blowback has been fierce. The blowback has been bipartisan. And to some degree, it has almost been unequivocal. It was a mess. What's the blowback been like? Absolutely. Lots of blowback from alumni, from donors, from current students, from political leaders against all three of these uh, college presidents' testimony as you know, too lawyerly, too technical, too focused on maybe free speech, First Amendment issues, and not on the issue of bullying, harassment, and anti-Semitism. New York Congressman uh, Dan Goldman had this to say on Twitter. He said, there's nothing contextual about calls for all Jews to be killed. Jewish students around the country are afraid. 
If colleges refuse to protect Jewish students from generalized bullying and harassment, then universities need either need a new code of conduct or new presidents. Uh, we also heard from the governor of Pennsylvania, Josh Shapiro, speaking forcefully outside of a falafel shop that had been targeted uh, by these pro-Palestinian protests. He said uh, this was an unacceptable statement. That was an unacceptable statement from the president of Penn. Of Penn. Frankly, I thought her comments were absolutely shameful. It should not be hard to condemn genocide, genocide against Jews, genocide against anyone else. And then finally, we have a tweet from hedge fund billionaire Bill Ackman, who went to Harvard, but who has been very critical of these universities' handling of instances of anti-Semitism. He said, they must all resign in disgrace. Throughout the hearing, the three behaved like hostile witnesses, exhibiting a profound disdain for the Congress with their smiles and smirks and their outright refusal to answer basic questions with a yes or no answer. So these college presidents were trying to approach this as kind of the next step in a long-running debate over free speech. That did not go over well with, with this audience. They said you had to be much more forceful in saying that calling for genocide against Jews is harassment, it is bullying, it should go against the university's code of conduct. I don't think this story is ending anytime soon based on what we've seen. Athena Jones, thanks so much. Uh, Donald Trump went pretty much unscathed last night. It's a Republican presidential debate, despite being the frontrunner by a lot. Warnings about a potential second Trump presidency continue. Next, Ron Brownstein looks at what it could mean for blue states in his new piece ahead. All that really matters is the voters in the end, and they are weighing in. After every debate, our Gary Tuckman assembles a group of Republican primary voters in Iowa to talk about how they thought the candidates did. The group has chosen a different winner for each of the first three Republican debates. So call this one a tiebreaker with a decisive victor. Here's Gary Tuckman. The fourth debate is over, but our fourth debate watch party with Republicans in Story County, Iowa, isn't finished yet. In the first three debates, the majority thought a different candidate won each time. Ramaswamy in the first, DeSantis in the second, Haley in the third. And this time? So I'm going to ask in alphabetical order, who thinks Christie won the debate? Zero of the eight. Who thinks DeSantis won the debate? One of the eight. Who thinks Haley won the debate? One, two, three, four, five, six. Who thinks Ramaswamy won the debate? Zero. One person didn't vote. That's Jim in the upper left. How come you're not voting there, Jim? I think Trump won. And my guess is you think Trump won because he wasn't here. That's right. But it was Nikki Haley who had a decisive victory among this group in Story County. Why do you think Haley won? Well, clearly lately she's been the one with the momentum, so I expected her to take a lot of hits tonight. And it's, the debate started with them coming after her, and I think she handled it really well. I think she also just is strong on policy, and she just is strong in these debates. And I think that's been a consistent part of her momentum, and she's been a strong debater. Judy? I agree with Brett that she had to dodge a lot of bullets tonight, and she stood up to each one of them. What do you think, Ray? I think people shoot arrows at the people that are winning. I, I think she's winning. Trey? Yeah, I think that every hit that she took, she had a response back. Megan, what do you think? I agree with everyone else that everyone was after her tonight in the debate, and I think she handled that with grace and charisma, and it was the most level-headed. And Jeff, what's your opinion? Well, like, like everybody else, she weathered the storm. Uh, it was obvious they were coming after her because she's, she's got an edge on the, the polls, of, at least of that group. And again, her foreign policy experience really shown through strong tonight. 
Deborah Stoner had a different take. Why do you think DeSantis won? I think he's got executive experience and a record of winning, um, and that's going to be the most important thing in a primary and then in a general election. We have to be Joe Biden. So regarding the Iowa caucuses less than six weeks from now? Most of you are undecided. I want to know, out of the eight of you, how many of you have made a decision about who you will caucus for? Please raise your hand if you have. So four of you have now decided. The three people on the bottom row who've decided from left to right say they will caucus for Haley, DeSantis, and Haley. The man on the upper left, as expected, says it will be Trump. He has done it. He has been the president. He has uh, made the tough decisions. Poppy, Phil, only one person in our panel who at this point is positive he will caucus for Donald Trump. But notably, I asked, who do you predict will win the Iowa caucuses? And the consensus among the eight people in our group? Trump. Poppy, Phil. That was Gary Tuckman. Let's keep discussing. Back with us are Scott Jennings, Karen Fenney, and John Avlon. All right, Avlon, what's your take <laughs> when you watch the voters? My take is this shows that the caucus situation in Iowa is still very fluid. Um, that the momentum is toward Nikki Haley, that a lot of the grass top leaders, including the governor, have basically given folks permission to find someone other than Donald Trump. Um, and remember that caucuses are a process of persuasion. And there are going to be some folks who are hardcore Donald Trump, not going to go anywhere, but there are going to be other people who are going to say, absolutely not. He's bad for the country. He doesn't represent our values. And we'll see who's got more gravitational pull. My only point consistently has been none of this is over. People haven't even started voting. And, um, you know, Frank Luntz, uh, you know, did a, did a little uh, four group uh, focus group uh, on, that we talked about on CNN late last night. And his group said that Chris Christie won that debate out of hand. They also uh, said Joe Biden won oh, the yes, debate last night point because yeah. point. And, you know, when you see Chris Christie being booed for telling the truth about Donald Trump, that is a good night for Joe Biden. If anybody could have found this debate, if you happen to have News Nation on your cable channel or you were watching I thought, it, I mean, so in that sense, there were many moments that I felt like if more general election voters were watching, that is actually a good thing for the Democrats. Second, the last thing I'll say is with, again, I go back to, you know, these dynamics that women candidates have to deal with. The fact that Nikki Haley, um, you know, did so well and people thought she did well showed that her strategy of just kind of staying above the fray really worked. I agree with you. There's some fluidity in the second tier. I don't really think there's that much fluidity with Trump. He is who he is and he's got who he's got. And they are very, very confident in their caucus building operation. Uh, you know, they've, they've got lots of confidence in what they start with, and that's not going away. DeSantis has a very, very robust and good operation in Iowa. He got the endorsement of the governor. I think despite the fluidity in that tier, they feel like their organization and the strength of the infrastructure is well beyond what Haley has been able. So the Iowa caucus is is somewhat about momentum, m momentum, but also some there is something to the the uh, the push and pull of getting people into the gyms yeah. and and voting for you. And I think Trump and DeSantis are still one two in that. All right, Scott Jennings, Karen Finney, John Avalon. Thanks, Thank guys. You guys, one of the Republican candidates on the debate stage will join us ahead. Chris Christie coming up in just a couple of minutes. Why he defended his rival Nikki Haley. And more on the funding fight over military assistance for Ukraine. Former UK Prime Minister and current Foreign Secretary David Cameron will lay out what's at stake. Stay with us. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish. Celebrities of all kinds are speaking publicly about their therapeutic trips, so to speak. 
It turns out there is a burgeoning industry ready to serve the new influx of people who find themselves turning away from traditional mental health therapy. The gap between what we know and what we don't about psychedelic therapy. Listen to The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish, on your favorite podcast app. He's made it very clear. There's no mystery to what he wants to do. He started off his campaign by saying, I am your retribution. Eight years ago, he said, I am your voice. This is an angry, bitter man who now wants to be back as president because he wants to exact retribution. That was Republican presidential candidate Chris Christie last night raising concerns about a potential second Trump presidency. This morning, The Atlantic magazine published another set of essays arguing that a second Trump presidency would be even more damaging than the first. One of those new essays warns that Trump will abuse power to go after blue states in his second term. That essay titled A War on Blue America. Joining us now is Ron Brownstein, a CNN senior political analyst and senior editor at The Atlantic. Ron, the crux of your piece, I want to pull out one part in particular. You say during his term in the White House, Donald Trump governed as a wartime president with Blue America rather than any foreign country as the adversary. I think what I took from your piece that I thought was so interesting is not what happens on a micro level, but what it would mean for the country going forward. What was your sense of that? Yeah. Well, look, yeah, I mean, I, I, first of all, good morning. I, I, look, Donald Trump as president, as I said, as you as you quoted, I think did govern as a wartime president for Red America. Uh, and most of that was for most of his presidency. That was through policy, trying to impose on blue states and blue cities the policies favored uh, in, in red states. I think you would see more of that in a, in a second term. Uh, ideas like, you know, banning federal aid to schools that don't follow what Republican states have done on limiting the teaching of race or trans transgender youth policies or his threat to prosecute locally elected DAs who he calls Marxists and lunatics. Um, So there's a lot of policy uh, imposition on blue jurisdictions. But what happened, as you know, toward the end of his presidency was he went way beyond that. And and in terms of deploying and projecting federal force into blue cities over the objections of mayors uh, and governors in in, in most cases. And And he is being very clear that he intends to ramp that up in a second term. Door-to-door deportation, the largest ever, uh, which would obviously unfold mostly inside of of large cities, sending in the National Guard in unspecified kind of uh, a mandate to restore law and order, sweeping the streets of homeless, building internment camps. Um, You start, you put all of that together. And it begins to look like the possibility of an occupying federal force uh, in the nation's largest cities that in all likelihood will vote against him in large numbers if he's the Republican nominee. And that uh, takes our current polarization, our sense that red and blue are hurtling away from each other and raises it to a very kinetic, tangible new level of conflict. And this comes your piece sort of at the perfect time, Ron, because it's right after days after Trump you know, didn't say, no, I won't be a dictator. He's talked about day one and then also talked about, you know, retribution and what that would look like. Fellow Republican, very different Republican, Senator Mitt Romney has responded to that. Let's listen to him. It's funny. I, 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 Donald Trump says so many absurd things that uh, I, I don't even know how you respond to them. So I, I sort of uh, uh, laugh and think he's trying to entertain his base. Uh, it's a dangerous course to go down, of course, but that's what he does on a regular basis. And I sort of uh, uh, laugh at what he's saying. 
So he's saying you got to laugh at it. It's ridiculous. You're shaking your head because your article is don't laugh at this. Look at his last year and then multiply it. Yeah, exactly. And, and, and Romney also said yesterday, I saw that he was quoted, that by promising this kind of retribution against, quote, his enemies, Trump actually is speaking to a substantial portion of his base. You know, we've had multiple polls where a majority, including some by conservative outlets like the American Enterprise Institute, where a majority of Republicans have said the traditional way of life is disappearing so fast we may have to use a force to save it. We've had polls where half of Republicans or more described the January 6th insurrection uh, in positive terms. I mean, Trump is essentially promising to use national power to advance factional ends, uh, yeah. to impose the priorities of red America on blue states and blue cities that are resisting it. And the new element, I think, is how much he envisions this being done through the projection of federal force. You know, I talked to one, one of the people I talked to for this story, Michael Nutter, the former mayor mm -hmm. of Philadelphia, pointed out that it would be chaos. I mean, you could imagine scenarios where uh, Trump is trying to use massive um, uh, projections of a border patrol or immigration forces to do this door-to-door -door deportation he's talking about. And you can envision the Philadelphia Police Department or local neighbors resisting it. I mean, we're, we're talking about potentially, if you take him seriously and literally, you know, go back to the old formulation, uh, he is talking about using federal force in a way that could be seen in blue America as an attempt to impose red America's agenda by force. Uh, Ron Brownstein, thank you so much. It's a really fascinating piece, the war on blue America out in the Atlantic today. We'll see you soon. And CNN This Morning continues right now. Four Republican hopefuls not named Trump trying to set themselves apart from him and each other. Every single candidate was going after Nikki Haley. I love all the attention, fellas. She clearly was doing this strategically. It's often very difficult to be the only person on the stage who's telling the truth. He's laid the groundwork for what really needs to truly be the direction of the Republican Party. I'm looking forward to Iowa and New Hampshire. We're going to earn this nomination. He was a different candidate on the debate stage. He had a really clear audience in mind. Your version of foreign policy experience was closing a bridge from New Jersey to New York. Get the hell out of this race. To hear him resuscitate conspiracy theories, it was pandering, it was pathetic, and it was disqualifying. He is a symptom of something that Donald Trump created. And the guy who was not on the stage is the winner each time. Well, good morning, everyone. I'm Phil Mattingly with Poppy Harlow in New York. It was the final GOB presidential debate of this year. Four candidates clashed on policy. They traded personal insults, and they recognized time is running out to make their pitch to voters before the Iowa caucuses, which are now just less than six weeks away. Nikki Haley took the brunt of the attacks from Ron DeSantis and Vivek Ramaswamy over her big-ticket donors and foreign policy positions. Watch. Say that that was an attack on America fails a basic test. I mean, Nick, if you can't tell the difference between where Israel is and the U.S. is on a map, I can have my three-year-old son show you the difference. We have other candidates up here like Nikki Haley. She caves anytime the left comes after her, anytime the media comes after her. Nikki, I don't have a woman problem. You have a corruption problem. And I think that that's what people need to know. Nikki is corrupt. It's not worth my time to respond to him. Her donors, these Wall Street liberal donors, they make money in China. They are not going to let her be tough on China, and she will cave to the donors. She will not stand up for you. First of all, he's mad because those Wall Street donors used to support him, and now they support me. Haley at times remained silent, also said it was jealousy, particularly during Ramaswamy's attacks. It was her opponent 
Chris Christie, who clashed with Ramaswamy over Ukraine. This is the fourth debate, the fourth debate that you would be voted in the first 20 minutes as the most obnoxious blowhard in America. So shut up for a while. Chris, your version of foreign policy experience was closing a bridge from New Jersey to New York. Yeah. So do everybody a favor, just walk yeah. yourself off that stage, enjoy a nice meal, yeah. and get the hell out of this yeah. race. Christie, who only got his first chance to speak 17 minutes, by the way, into the debate, spoke the least among the candidates. He grew frustrated with his opponents for sidestepping the Republican elephant in the room, former President Trump. Instead, Trump, who did not once again attend the debate, seemed to come out unscathed. Well, this morning, Trump is expected back in a New York courtroom for a civil fraud trial, which is likely to begin to wrap up next week when Trump takes the stand again. Joining us now to discuss all of this, CNN political commentator and former Trump campaign advisor David Urban, CNN political commentator and former senior spokesperson for Hillary for America, Karen Finney, and New York Times national political correspondent Lisa Lair. Guys, welcome. Lisa, I want to start with you because you had a recent piece (laughs) <laughs> which may have been a motivating factor, may not, uh, in some of Chris Christie's tone and posture over the course of the last several days. Talking about a reality, which is behind the scenes, there are donors who want Trump to lose, that want him to get out of the race, They want Christie to drop out. After last night, what do you think his calculation is? Well, look, I think he certainly wanted to show that he still deserves a place on that stage, that he's bringing something to the table here that's unique from the other candidates who are remaining. Uh, What he argues he's bringing is that he's the only guy who's willing to go after President Trump or former President Trump directly. And we certainly saw that last night. Now, whether that's enough, I think there's a big sense among donors and among uh, the the sort of wing of the party that wants an alternative to Trump, that they would be served better by narrowing it down to one candidate. Uh, That momentum has really been behind Nikki Haley. So I'm not sure that changes that overall dynamic. But he certainly was showing to people that he had a role to play in this race. And, you know, particularly I would point to his exchange with Ron DeSantis, where he really hit, pressed Ron DeSantis to say whether he thought Trump was unfit for the presidency. And Ron DeSantis really evaded that question in a way that was quite unartful, didn't do him any favors. I, ca- I cannot, David, picture a world in which Chris Christie would drop out of this before Vivek Ramaswamy. <laughs> Just in the, like, <laughs> principle alone. I am serious. <laughs> no, look, I, I mean, am serious. Governor Christie, I think, did an incredible job last night. I think the best performance. Of, of all his debates, he was very relaxed. He was kind of in his groove. And, and I think, you know, to your point, he, he was try, maybe, maybe trying to prove something, like I, he deserves a spot. And he he was the uh, the fourth moderator up there at, at times, I believe, kind of like say, saying, excuse me, please answer the question that yeah. was posed to you. My, I used to, my, my old boss would say, I worked for our inspector as a prosecutor like Christie, he said, you know, he, he, somebody would give him an answer. He'd say, that's a very good answer to a completely different question. Yeah. Right, answer my question that I posed. And that's what Christie kept saying last night. He wouldn't let people off the hook. I think it was it was uh, it was useful. It was welcome, and he and he drew a big distinction between himself and the three other candidates who were there. But I think he was also trying to, um, you know, position Ramaswamy and DeSantis as just unelectable, as you know, inappropriate. Uh, and he actually had a moment where he stuck up for Nikki Haley. She did not need it, by the way. She did a great job holding her own. Yeah. But it was an interesting moment. Do we when... have that moment? I just, for yeah. people who didn't watch last night, I'd love for them to see it. Do we have it, guys? Okay, watch this. He has insulted Nikki Haley's basic intelligence. Not her positions, her basic intelligence. If you want to disagree on issues, that's fine. And Nikki and I disagree on some issues. But I'll tell you this, I've known her for 12 years, which is longer than he's even started to vote in a Republican primary. 
And while we disagree about some issues and we disagree about who should be president of the United States, what we don't disagree on is this is a smart, accomplished woman. You should stop insulting so her. That's an interesting moment because, you know, here he is going back and forth, basically talking over the other two. But then he, you know, comes out and is defending her. I actually thought it was a play for women, female voters, because, you know, one of the things we saw with, you know, Gary Tuckman's group, you heard uh, the voters who were watching say they liked the way she held her own. And that as the person who was being attacked, that was her opportunity was to show I can take it. I'm tough enough. I can handle this. And that sort of toughness is, you know, what you want when you're trying to look presidential. But as I say, Chris Christie wanted to make clear, I think that, you know, this was a moment where he could jump in and actually uh, maybe pick up some votes some from women. It was also a moment of civility. Yes. Wise. Decent. Yeah, no, I yes. agree. Well, oh, have him been attacked. They're right. They are, they Not are all of us are as jaded and cynical as Scott Jennings well, was last hour on the panel saying it was purely a political moment. Well, let me just say, having, can I just say, having been attacked by Chris Christie on television, uh, I found that it was a lovely moment, but I also thought it was there was a calculation there. I, I, I want to ask though, dude, look, no one on that stage is within a country mile of the guy who's winning the race. And... Christie was the only person who was attacking it. You mentioned the kind of inartful putting DeSantis on the spot. Why? There's 39 days. Like, are they ever going to attack the guy who's destroying I mean, them in I mean, every poll? You heard Governor Christie again saying, hey, hey, everybody, we're not talking about the one person that we should be talking about. We're rearranging the deck chairs in the Titanic here. Right? We're moving these numbers around. We're going 14 to 13. We're sharing market share on this side of the, of the ledger, but we're not taking any market share away from Donald yeah. Trump. And I, I guarantee if you look at the polls tomorrow, the next day, in the future, next couple of weeks, those numbers aren't going to change. If anything, Trump's numbers probably are going to go up again because people are going to start looking at Iowa. They're going to say, that debate wasn't, nothing really moved there. Nothing really moved the needle. And I'm going to stick with the guy who, who I was originally for. And I think Trump's numbers will continue to be ascendant. You know what right, I so, have to sort of ahead, think Lisa. about this is there's one race that we're watching in this debate, and then there's the actual race, right? right? Which where Donald right. Trump leads by 20, 30, 40 points nationally. And it's a whole different thing. And this, as you point out, is not moving the needle. But, you know, it's nice to talk about these guys and what they're doing and what's going on. <laughs> but it doesn't feel so relevant to the actual who the actual winner will be of Iowa or of New Hampshire or the nominee. Can I just ask, Lisa, yeah. one other thing? You know what yeah. is relevant in Iowa is the issue of abortion. Right. And that is an issue that did not even come up at all last night as a question, even given some moves on that from Nikki Haley saying recently she'd sign a six-week federal bank. Chris Christie would not. That was surprising to me, especially yeah. before Iowa. Uh, yeah, I agree with you. It was surprising. I, obviously, this is a big issue in Iowa. But it's been, I think, um, I was really impressed with these moderators. I me think too. They were really trying to draw sharp contrasts. They brought up, really, the critiques against every candidate very, very directly. And I suspect that they thought abortion was an issue that had been discussed, right? We've had several really long, notable exchanges on abortion. I would guess that they were longer exchanges about abortion. I would than say America's yes, yes. But remember, before Nikki Haley said she would sign that six-week ban, right. she was on the last debate stage yeah. talking about, "Here's what I personally believe, but here's what real, what's realistic for America." That would have been an important thing to, totally. I think, hash out with the only female candidate as well and all of she this. She was trying to walk that line early on to sort of a kinder, gentler, I guess, approach on abortion. But then we had the Virginia elections where it was clear that a 15-week yeah. ban is still considered a ban yeah. uh, to voters. And so perhaps she decided... Not a, what was the word that... Um, 
the uh, governor was using to describe common it. Sense, uh, no, no, he was trying to. It's not a ban. It's a seven oh nine. Too early for me to come <laughs> exactly. over. Exactly. Limit the limit. They like yeah, a limit. A right. limit. It's yeah. still a ban. A ban is a ban is a ban. Yeah. So she potentially decided, you know, what, let me get where the Republican base is and go with the six weeks. Well, I, know, I know this is a primary focused on this, these uh, debates are focused on who's going to win in Iowa, but Republicans need to start exercising those general election muscles yeah. soon, right? Sooner rather than later. And I think the more you talk about abortion, the more you figure out how to discuss it in a manner that doesn't send people to the other side of the aisle, right? Um, that, that's better for Republicans. So the man, more- it's going to be hard. Because even oh, Nikki Haley, I mean, mm-hmm. if you look at her record, she voted for, you know, state legislative pr- provision after provision, <laughs> granting, you know, constitutional rights to fetuses and right. banning at this level and that level, demanding all kinds of restrictions. So I, I think you're right. They need to, the party needs to figure out a way to talk about this that, you know, broad swaths of the American public will accept. But that is going to be a heavy lift. All right, David Urban, Karen Fenney, Lisa Lair. Thanks, guys. Appreciate it. Later this hour, we'll be joined by presidential candidate Chris Christie live here on CNN This Morning. We'll get his response to donors, some big donors from his own party, pushing for him to drop out. And right now, Israeli forces are pushing deeper into southern Gaza. Hear what Secretary of State Anthony Blinken exclusively told CNN about how civilians there are being protected. Stay with us. They nonetheless have an obligation to do everything possible to protect civilians, to distinguish between terrorists and innocent men, women, and children. And that part Uh, doesn't seem to be going so well, Mr. Secretary, about keeping the civilians safe. But what we're seeing now is we're seeing some, uh, I think, important steps being taken as they're operating, they're beginning to operate in the south of Gaza. Uh That was Secretary of State Antony Blinken offering new and important assessments on the Israel-Hamas war last night on CNN's King Charles, right here on CNN. It comes exactly two months since the unprecedented attack by Hamas on Israel. And as Jews in Israel and around the world prepare to celebrate Hanukkah starting tonight, in northern Gaza, new pictures show thousands taking shelter inside a damaged hospital. And Israeli forces are pushing deeper into southern Gaza and mounting a show of force now surrounding the home, they say, of Hamas leader Yahya Sinwar. Alex Markhart has reporting live from Tel Aviv. That is a significant development, right? But they're saying he is underground at this point. Yeah, the, a top aide for Benjamin Netanyahu said that it's more a symbolic victory than anything else. I mean, Poppy, there has been so much Israeli focus on the city of Khan Yunus because they do believe that Hamas leadership is there. Um, they have been focusing so much of the fighting. There's been intense fighting in and around there. Uh, Israel says that they have broken through their the Hamas defensive lines, and, and they're trying to make the point that they can go anywhere in Gaza, uh, including surrounding the house uh, of uh, Hamas's top leader, Yahya Sinwar. Now, Benjamin Netanyahu says it's only a matter of time before they get him, but the the IDF does say that they believe uh, that he is below ground. They, they don't say where, uh, but obviously he is the number one target. But Poppy, as you pointed out, today is two months since the horrific attacks on October 7th, two months since Israel announced that they were going to do everything they could to eradicate Hamas. And here you have the top leader of Hamas, Yahya Sinwar, as well as the top two leaders of the, of the military arm uh, who still have not been found. Poppy. Can you also talk about the development about commercial ships in the Red Sea? There's new reporting about the U.S. considering sending protection to them, given the you know, attempted strikes against them just a couple days ago. 
Yeah, this is really notable, and it really speaks to the major concern about what's going on in the Red Sea with those Iranian-backed Houthi rebels in, in Yemen. Uh, the U.S. and other countries, we understand, are, are in discussions to uh, potentially escort commercial ships in the Red Sea uh, past Yemen, basically into the Gulf of Aden. There's a, the, a narrow passageway between Africa and Yemen, and that is because uh, the Houthis really have stepped up their attacks in, in recent months. There, there are major concerns, there have been concerns, that, that the Houthis would really want to expand this conflict. We've seen them launching missiles and drones attacking commercial ships, even uh, seizing an Israeli-linked ship. Uh, so now, uh, according to sources speaking to my colleagues, Katie Bolillis and, and Natasha Bertrand, the U.S. Is in, is in talks with what is known as the Combined Maritime Forces, which is a multinational task force, uh, to escort uh, the, those commercial ships uh, from the Red Sea into the Gulf of Aden. It really does speak to these mm -hmm. significant concerns about the capabilities of those Houthi rebels. Poppy. Yeah, and it, it's remarkable. They're commercial ships. We're not talking about military vessels. It's they would need that kind of protection. Alex, thanks very much for the reporting live from Tel Aviv. Bill. Well, Senate Republicans have just blocked a bill that would have sent billions of dollars in aid to Israel and Ukraine. Will the president give in to the Republicans' demands? We're going to speak to a top administration official about their next moves. Also this morning, we are learning new details about the college professor who opened fire at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas. Three people murdered. School shootings have been happen happening since I was born. I was born in the year 2000. It's 2023. And I'm tired of it. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. Well, this morning, there are some new details on the shooter who police say killed three people at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas. The campus huddled together for a vigil last night. After sources tell CNN the shooter was at a career college, was a career college professor. His name, we're just getting this, Anthony Polito, 67 years old, who police say shot and was shot and killed after the rampage. He reportedly had sought a job at UNLV. Polito's LinkedIn page lists him most recently as a full-time employee employment and business professor at East Carolina University. Here's what we do know. Three people were murdered, a fourth person injured. Four others are being treated at hospitals for what is being described as panic attacks from the shooting. Two law enforcement officers are also being treated for minor injuries and for parents and loved ones waiting for word during the lockdown. Some breathtaking revelations coming in one text message at a time. The first text is, of course, she's telling me that there was an active shooter and that she was scared. And then she said, I love you. Police searched the suspect's home overnight. They have yet to determine a motive. Classes at the UNLV campus are canceled through at least Sunday. Well, President Biden outlining in very stark terms what he believes is at stake if the U.S. fails to support Ukraine against Russia. Listen. We can't let Putin win. It's in our overwhelming national interest and the international interest of all our friends. Any disruption in our ability to supply Ukraine clearly strengthens Putin's position. Those comments did not phase Senate Republicans who killed an emergency funding package last night demanding tougher restrictions on immigration at the border in exchange for their support. The prospect of funding for both Ukraine and Israel now looking more grim than ever. Joining us now to discuss, the director of the Office of Management and Budget, one of the top negotiators on these issues, Shalanda Young. Director Young, I appreciate your time this morning. I want to start with yesterday, when the, in the president's remarks, he also said he's willing to make significant compromises on the border. Are those new compromises, or is this about the discussions that have already happened? 
Uh, thanks, Phil, for having me this morning. It's a little chilly, but uh, still glad to be here with you. Uh, look, I think the president also used the word stunning yesterday. It is stunning that Republicans know the stakes on our national security front, know what happens if Putin marches through Ukraine, knows what happens if we are not there for our longest uh, ally in the Middle East. Uh, this, is, this is people's lives. Uh, and by the way, the president asked for funding uh, to strengthen border security. So if you are for border security, you would have voted for that bill. And in doing that, though, he put the issue of the border on the table here, which I think has opened the door to Republicans saying, look, you need Republican votes. We want more on the border. Therefore, if you want the funding, you're going to have to give us policy changes. Do you feel like that was a mistake to put it in in the first place? No, absolutely not. This is a critical uh, need at the southwest border. The president has been very clear about that. By the way, this isn't his first time asking. He asked for funding for the border last December, only got half. He asked for funding in September, got none. He asked for funding now, and Republicans are saying, not good enough. You know, I've done this for a long time. This is stunning to me that Republicans won't fund uh, more uh, equipment to look for fentanyl at the border. It is stunning that that won't happen. By the way, they need Republican votes to pass this national security package. You also need Democratic votes. Anything that passes in divided government has to be bipartisan. And Republicans continue to say my way or nothing on the border. You are known, and I, you know that because you're known in Washington as an outcomes person. You're the person who gets the job done, knows how to not just do the math, but count the votes and get to that point. Do you feel like an outcome is going to require losing Democratic votes in the Senate? Look, I'm not going to negotiate from, from here, even though I love having this back and forth with you, Phil. What we will do and what our job is to continue to my, remind everyone of the stakes if this uh, security funding is not provided. Uh, this is not hyperbole. You've heard it from the president. There is a risk that if Putin is allowed to go through Ukraine, he is on NATO's door, and then our sons and daughters could possibly be uh, a part of conflicts. So this is, you know, these are political games. And unfortunately, this is, a, a, this is becoming a, a norm where Republicans know the stakes, like in debt sailing, and continue to push for things that are unrelated, even though uh, the, the stakes are too high to fail. Can you, uh, you had this in your letter, I'm wondering, for people to understand that this isn't just uh, a political move on your guys' part to try and secure funding. How much money is currently left, and what happens when it's gone? Phil, we're going to make a couple of more announcements on packages. We have a, about a billion dollars in which to do that uh, out of uh, the hundred billion provided uh, to date. Uh, so we're really out of money. Uh, we're out of economic support. And by the way, if you don't pay, uh, pay the government to continue to operate, you also lose a war. Uh, we don't have uh, much more beyond this year to continue to send weapons. Uh, and what happens with our partners once the U.S. pulls back? Uh, so it will, our fear is this is a domino effect that makes it harder and harder for the Ukrainians uh, to win, and where they've done exceptionally well defending themselves. Uh there have been uh, reports that there are some Senate Democrats, uh, our, our mutual pal Burgess Everett over at Politico, talked to Senator Michael Bennett, um, who said the president, the only way out of this may be the president getting into a room with leaders uh, and trying to craft a deal. Do you see the president calling people to the White House, a meeting between the president and Senator McConnell or Speaker Johnson anytime soon? 
Look, I spent a lot of time in those rooms doing debt ceiling. Uh, I think people know the path here. I think what Senate Democrats put up was uh, a good way forward. It did what the president asked. It said, we need to do something at the southwest border in addition to being there for our allies uh, with Ukraine and Israel. Uh, but look, we're, we're always willing to have a conversation. Um, but I believe Congress has been talking about this long enough, and I'm happy uh, that the question was called. Unfortunately, uh, people who know the stakes, who are supporters of Ukraine, who are supporters of Israel, uh, decided to put politics ahead of our uh, national security interests. And frankly, I'm, I, I remain stunned by that. So we will continue to make the case uh, of how important this is. The stakes are too high to give up, uh, and we will continue to push for this. If it's December and it's crunch time on funding, Shalanda Young is likely deeply engaged in the moment. OMB Director Shalanda Young, please put a jacket on. We appreciate your time. Thank you. <laughs> she's, she's, Thanks, Phil. She's tough. She could take it. All right. Tensions ran high at the fourth Republican presidential debate. Next, we're going to be joined by one of the four White House hopefuls who did not hold back. There he is. Governor Chris Christie with us live next. The fifth guy who doesn't have the guts to show up and stand here, he's the one who, as you just put it, is way ahead in the polls. And yet, I've got these three guys who are all seemingly to compete um, with, you know, Voldemort. He or shall not be named. This is the fourth debate, the fourth debate that you would be voted in the first 20 minutes as the most obnoxious blowhard in America. So shut up for a while. We're now 25 minutes into this debate, and he has insulted Nikki Haley's basic intelligence, not her positions, her basic intelligence. This is a smart, accomplished woman. You should stop insulting her. If you ever got another Donald Trump term, he's letting you know, I am your retribution. Thank he will you. only be Elizabeth. He will only be his own retribution. He doesn't care for the American people. It's Donald Trump first. So do I think he was kidding? When he said he was a dictator, all you have to do is look at the history. Let me make it clear. His conduct is unacceptable. He's unfit. Former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie, as you just saw there, did not shy away from criticizing his opponents, both on stage and off the stage at the fourth Republican presidential debate. It was a fiery night, and he joins us this morning from Tuscaloosa, Alabama. Governor, thanks very much for being with us, as always. I, I want to start with your defense Thank of you. Nikki Haley. You know it's getting a lot of headlines. Is an alliance beginning to form between the two of you? Stop. You know, you guys are so cynical. Stop. Um, how about That's not your cynical. You broke out last night? Yeah, yeah. I called it yeah, civilized yeah, no, no, it in the last hour. I said it was you know civil and important. No, you're, you're, what the intentions you read into it are cynical. How about basic human decency? Yeah. And that's all I displayed on the stage last night with Nikki Haley. Look, I disagree with Nikki on a lot of things, and I don't think she's strong enough to take on Donald Trump. I think she is absolutely avoiding doing it. Um, she's playing prevent defense on the stage last night, trying to protect a lead she doesn't have. Um, so I have plenty of problems with Nikki, but her basic intelligence is not one of them. Um, in fact, I think she's a really bright, accomplished woman. And she belongs on that stage. But, you know, I'm not going to let Vivek Ramaswamy sit there and take broadside shots and say his three-year-old son knows more than her. Look, Vivek Ramaswamy is a misogynist. I think that's the only thing we can conclude when you hear all of his comments about women. 
um, and he goes at women's basic intelligence. And I think a lot of women watching that last night uh, felt like uh, that's exactly what he was doing. That's what I felt, being the husband of a strong, accomplished wife um, who worked in a very male-dominated business on Wall Street. Um, and I was not going to let it go on anymore. So I don't think Nikki Haley should be our nominee, and I don't think she should be president of the United States. But I'll tell you this, she's certainly a very smart and accomplished woman, and she deserves credit for what she's done in her career. Um, and I'm not going to stand there as a good person. My mother taught me better than that, and allow someone like that to take those kind of ridiculous shots at her. And you're very right. Mary Pat is all of those things as well, Governor. Hey, Governor, I can I know I know how you feel about somebody on the debate stage based on kind of the intensity of your response. It's one of your tells. <laughs> it's not a bad one, by the way. Um, the intensity of your responses to Vivek Ramaswamy are at another level. Why? Because he's like a drunk driver on the debate stage. And he doesn't belong there. Guy hasn't voted in a Republican primary till the last Republican primary. And he's up there critiquing everybody else and calling us all thieves and liars and corrupt and all the rest of it. When meantime, what this guy did was make his fortune um, off of a, 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 you know, an Alzheimer's drug that didn't work and gave people false hope. He's nothing but a patent troll and a bad person. And he doesn't belong on the stage. Um, not because of any RNC criteria, it's because of basic decency. And you saw it last night. And now he's calling January 6th an inside job. I mean, this guy, there is nothing that he won't stoop to. But I will tell you this too, Ron DeSantis last night proved himself to be a coward. He won't answer whether he would send troops to Taiwan to defend if China uh, invaded. He won't say whether he would send troops for a credible plan to try to save American hostages in Gaza. And he won't say whether Donald Trump is fit for office or not, even though he got all three of those questions directly. I got those questions directly. I answered them directly. Voters can agree or disagree with the position I take. That's absolutely fair. But he is like evading every question up there because he's afraid of offending. And in very much the same way, Nikki won't offend on Donald Trump either. It seems to me like both of them are warming up for the 2028 primary and trying to get Trump voters uh, in 2028 rather than trying to prevent the train wreck that a Trump presidency would be in 2024. Governor, the debate last night was just hours after yet another mass shooting in America. Three people murdered on the UNLV campus, and yet the issue of guns did not come up except one question to Ramaswamy on his call for AR-15s in Taiwan. So for our viewers who want to know your position on guns and mass shootings in America, what would combating this wretched gun violence in America look like in a Christie administration. Previously, you have been supportive of an assault weapons ban. It actually motivated your run in the state of New Jersey in 1993. Well, let me just say this. I think that it's very, very important um, for us to enforce the laws that we already have in the books. That's what I did as governor of New Jersey. I very aggressively enforced those laws. If the, the recent mass shooting we had in Maine, if the laws have been enforced regarding someone who showed clear signs of mental disturbance and violent conduct uh, and violent speaking, um, you know, we would have prevented those deaths. And so I want to see exactly what happened at UNLV last night. But I will say to you that at the end of this, um, if we don't deal with the mental health crisis in this country um, and provide much more mental health treatment for folks and make it easier to involuntarily commit people 
who have obvious mental health issues and are speaking violently. We're going to continue to see this violence, whether we ban a, 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 a type of weapon or not. Uh, we have 350 million guns in circulation, Poppy, and banning certain weapons, unless you're going to confiscate them too, which I would never do, um, mm -hmm. you're not going to change the problem unless you get to the root cause, which is the mental health of the people who engage in these mass shootings. Does that mean you would no, you no longer would sign as president an, an assault weapons ban? Just want to be clear here. Oh, yeah, no. No. All right, Governor Chris Christie. Uh, unequivocally attacking the former president when others wouldn't last night once again. We appreciate your time, sir. Thank you. Yeah. Oh, but Phil, yeah. by the way, would yeah. you remind Jeff Selene that I actually was doing that? I listened to Jeff this morning who said no one laid a glove on Donald Trump. I, I, I wondered whether Jeff was like watching a basketball game. Oh, no, he um, was during watching the, during very the debate closely last night and then providing they're providing commentary. But if you want to have somebody who's going to lay a glove on Donald Trump, go to chrischristie.com and donate. Um, I'm the one who's going to tell the truth, and I'll even tell it to Jeff Zeleny. First off, I think Jeff Zeleny would happily have that discussion with you. I think you know that well, too. I think Jeff was talking about the bigger picture things where they stand right now. I will defend, I like you, man, but I will defend Jeff Zeleny against anybody and his journalistic talent uh, and observations. And integrity. Yeah. yeah. Well, well, I didn't question his integrity. I just questioned whether he actually watched the debate. And even somebody like Jeff Zeleny can be wrong every once in a while, guys. I disagree, sir. <laughs> but I, I know he's there, so I'm sure you guys will run in. Respectfully. Give me a, <laughs> you guys should go have a cup of coffee, Governor. We will give you a readout of his views, and I hope he passes them along to us as well. <laughs> Governor Chris Christie, we always appreciate it, my friend. Thank you. Thank you, thank you. Okay, the push to get, to get Congress to pass new funding for Ukraine is now getting help from the United Kingdom. We're going to be joined next by the former UK Prime Minister and current Foreign Minister. David Cameron is with us. And we'll break down the details of a new lawsuit that claims Meta is creating a, quote, breeding ground for child predators on Facebook and Instagram. Stay with us. Obviously, this is the fate of the world at stake, uh, because if the United States doesn't support Ukraine, Ukraine cannot win this war. Ultimately, Kyiv will be a Russian city, and we will rue the day that we left Ukraine to hang out to drive. That was Democratic Senator Chris Murphy outlining the stakes if Congress doesn't enact new funding for Ukraine. Today, Congress has approved more than $110 billion for Kyiv since Russia's invasion. The current package calls for an additional $61 billion for Ukraine. But as we mentioned earlier, that funding, along with money for Israel, was blocked in the U.S. Senate yesterday because Republicans want more to be done to protect the border. President Biden's push to compel Congress to act, now getting some help from the United Kingdom. Former U.K. Prime Minister, current Foreign Minister David Cameron was in Washington yesterday meeting with House Speaker Mike Johnson. You see them right there. And Cameron's visit to the United States is in part to reaffirm Britain's support for Ukraine. We are happy to be joined this morning by U.K. Foreign Minister David Cameron. Thank you so much for your time. And let's just go to that meeting with the House Speaker. Did it seem that he was committed to getting that funding to Ukraine, even if it means you know, Republican concessions. I think he is committed to getting that, that money through. And most of the people I met on the Hill yesterday support backing Ukraine because it's the right thing to do. I mean, if you fundamentally think about it, the country's supporting Ukraine 
add up their economies and we, we outmatch Russia 30 to 1. We've just got to make that economic strength show and make it pay. Uh, and that's what this is all about. Obviously, it's complicated about exactly how a bill goes through Congress and what it gets attached to it. And I don't want to get involved in that. But I just absolutely know that this money will make a huge difference to a Ukrainian campaign that actually is, in many ways, far more successful than people give them credit for. They've taken back half the land that Russia stole from them. The other night, they destroyed 20% of Russia's attack helicopters in one night, thanks to American equipment. They've driven the Russian Navy back across the Black Sea. They're exporting grain again, so their economy is growing again. This is an investment into their success. And the worst thing in the world would be to allow Putin a win in Ukraine, not just because uh, that would be bad in itself, but he'd be back for more. Mr. Foreign Secretary, the U.S. and the U.K. have been pillars in the kind of Western coalition that has driven the funding, that has driven the support over the course of this conflict. In your view, what happens to that coalition if the U.S. can't deliver uh, with this round of funding? Well, the U.S. is the linchpin of the coalition because you're such a strong and powerful economy and you have such capable military and diplomatic and economic assets. But one of the things I've been pleased to see coming back into politics is actually the incredible unity across the European nations. You know, NATO is getting stronger and bigger. We've got Sweden joining, Finland joining. Many more countries are spending 2% of their GDP on uh, on defense, which is absolutely right. I called for many years ago, and quite rightly, the Americans have supported it. But there's no doubt that, that America coming forward with this package will lift the morale of Ukrainians. It will make sure Europe focuses on doing more. And to people in, in the US who say, well, is, the, is, is Europe doing enough? Right now, actually, if you add up military and civilian, uh, European nations are doing more than the US. And I think that's important and quite right. Turning to the war between Israel and Hamas, the UK's defense secretary is visiting Israel and also the West Bank this week. Your, your former chief foreign policy advisor, John Kasson, has been critical of the Netanyahu regime's approach and what we're seeing in terms of the response in Gaza, saying, quote, the current approach is not making the Israelis safe and secure for the long term, but creating a traumatized generation of Palestinians, teaching them that Israel is their enemy. It is undermining the prospects of a two-state solution and deliberately dismantling it. Do you agree and do you have concerns about the continued way that Israel is responding? Well, I start from the simple proposition that what happened on October the 7th was a terrible terrorist attack. And I stood in Kibbutz Berry and saw the rooms where, you know, children were murdered in front of their parents and parents were killed in front of their children. And we have to give Israel that basic support of saying, you are right to try to get rid of Hamas's leadership and its uh, armed personnel, because effectively you can't live next to a state that is run by a, a group of, of, of terrorists. And so, you know, it, to that extent, we should support Israel. And to people who call, you know, for an immediate ceasefire now, if we leave Hamas in charge of even a part of Gaza, there will never be a two-state solution because you can't expect Israel to live next to a, a group of people that, are, that want to do October the 7th all over again. But of course, as Israel takes the steps that it's taking, we want them to obey international humanitarian law. We want them to minimize civilian casualties. I know you had um, Tony Blinken on your program yesterday, and I'm going to be meeting with him today. And he made a series of points about how Israel is trying to behave differently in the south of Gaza to the north of Gaza. And I think that is right. And we should continue to make those points to them because 
Ultimately, the long-term security of Israel does depend not only on their own armed strength and fortitude, but also on having um, Palestinians able to live in, in, in peace and security as well. Sir, you're an astute observer of obviously your politics, but the U.S. politics as well. I'm interested <clears throat> if we could step back, because in all of these conflicts, the leadership of the U.S. is a critical piece of it. When you look at the political uh, realities in the United States right now, a 2024 campaign that's very much on a way, underway and a frontrunner that is somebody who disagrees on a lot of issues uh, with kind of the key Western uh, pillars of the last several decades. What do you think? Well, I think two things. One is that, you know, your friends and allies um, have got to make a better case for why, you know, European security is so essential to American security. I believe that it is. I mean, if you look at our two countries, uh, our people live all over the world. Our businesses trade all over the world. The case for engagement, for trying to bring about stability and security in the Middle East, the case for beating back Putin in Ukraine, the cases for those things are very strong. They're in our own national interest. But I think there's something else we both have in common, which is our domestic politics have been sort of disrupted by problems over immigration, by problems over unequal economic development as the, the uh, and some people in places left behind. And we have to address those issues, too. So um, the but that shouldn't be alternatives. We've got to address our domestic issues and problems and domestic security and prosperity and at the same time be thoroughly engaged abroad. The, the two things do go together. It's, it's harder to argue for. It's hard to do. But this was never meant to be easy. UK Foreign Secretary, former Prime Minister David Cameron, we appreciate your time, sir. Thank you very much. Thank you. Ahead for us, menthol cigarettes were supposed to be banned this year, but implementing the new rules has been postponed. We'll talk about why some believe that is and why the delay from the Biden administration next. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. Health this morning, the Biden administration facing fresh criticism over the delay of federal rules that were to ban menthol flavored cigarettes. The rule was originally planned to be finalized by August of this year. Now it's not expected until March of next year. Some are blaming politics. Renee Marsh joins us with more. What's happening? Good morning, Poppy and Phil. You know, there is this anger and outrage from groups like the NAACP and a long list of public health organizations after this delay was announced, despite the FDA's and the Health and Human Services support for this menthol ban. Now, the science is very clear. The CDC says that menthol flavor makes cigarettes more addictive. The tobacco industry has aggressively marketed menthol cigarettes to minority communities. More than 83 percent of black smokers, they choose menthols compared to 30 percent of whites and black people die at significantly higher rates uh, from smoking-related illnesses. And so the NAACP says failure to enact this ban would be discriminatory. And they say that is the case because this has had such an outsized health crisis impact on the black community. Take a listen. If you don't ban menthol flavor, you send it a clear message that black lives do not matter. If it is not banned, it raised a real question. Is this a discriminatory act by this administration to neglect the health concerns of the African-American community? 
Well, meantime, Republicans see this as a political liability for Biden. Conservative advocacy groups have focused political ads on this issue. You're looking at one there. Uh, meantime, Senator Tom Cotton, uh, for example, he's tweeting about this as well, uh, saying, tweet, Joe Biden wants to ban menthol cigarettes, which are favored by black smokers. Meanwhile, he wants to legalize weed for white college kids. So Republicans are hoping to make this a wedge issue to siphon off some, even if a small amount of Biden's voters in some of those battleground states like Nevada, Ohio, and Pennsylvania. The White House, for their part, they have not given a clear reason for this delay. Well, it's really interesting and important. Renee, thank you for tracking it. And CNN sure. This Morning continues right now. I don't have a woman problem. You have a corruption problem. And I think that that's what people need to know. Nikki is corrupt. It's not worth my time to respond to him. Her donors, these Wall Street liberal donors, they make money in China. They are not going to let her be tough on China, and she will cave to the donors. She will not stand up for you. He's mad because those Wall Street donors used to support him, and now they support me. There you have it. If you were up late last night watching the debate, it was a fiery one. Good morning, everyone. I'm Poppy Harlow with Phil Mattingly in New York. Four of the five remaining Republican presidential candidates sparred and traded insults during their final debate this year. With less than six weeks to go before the Iowa caucuses, as you just heard, Nikki Haley took the brunt of the attacks from DeSantis and Ramaswamy over her big ticket donors and her foreign policy positions. At one point, Ramaswamy even holding up a handwritten sign reading Nikki equals corrupt. Well, Chris Christie defended Nikki Haley last night and on our air just moments ago when he had this to say about her. Look, I disagree with Nikki on a lot of things, and I don't think she's strong enough to take on Donald Trump. I think she is absolutely avoiding doing it. Um, she's playing prevent defense on the stage last night, trying to protect a lead she doesn't have. I don't think Nikki Haley should be our nominee, and I don't think she should be president of the United States. But I'll tell you this, she's certainly a very smart and accomplished woman, and she deserves credit for what she's done in her career. Notably absent, of course, was the Republican frontrunner, Donald Trump, who was left largely unscathed by the candidates, with the exception of Chris Christie. And if you don't say that, he's going to get very angry. We're going to talk to Jeff Zeleny about that in a little bit. Instead of hitting the campaign trail, Trump is expected to be in a New York courtroom in just a couple of hours in that $250 million civil fraud trial against his Trump organization. The trial is expected to wrap up early next week after Trump takes the stand again on Monday. Let's bring in the aforementioned Jeff Zeleny, live in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. Jeff, we'll get to the former governor of New Jersey in a second, but last night's debate, did it move the needle at all, given the front runner by a large margin wasn't even there? Hey, Phil, good morning. I mean, time is certainly running out to move that needle, but we will find out how voters uh, really assessed all of this, particularly those Iowa voters, New Hampshire voters who will begin this process in just about six weeks or so. But it certainly was that confrontation with Florida Governor Ron DeSantis and former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley really going after one another throughout the debate, particularly DeSantis going after Haley, trying to slow her rise. She receded a bit into the background, uh, likely by design, by strategy trying to stay out of the fray. But he clearly was trying to make his case, his record to, um, on conservative issues known. This is one of those exchanges. I am sick of Republicans who are not willing to stand up and fight back against what the left is doing to this country. And you have other candidates up here like Nikki Haley. She caves 
anytime the left comes after her, anytime the media comes after her. I actually said his don't say gay bill didn't go far enough because it only talked about gender until the third grade. And I said it shouldn't be done at all, that that's for parents to talk about. It shouldn't be talked about with schools. So that was just a little sampling of the pile on there on Nikki Haley. Uh, most of her rivals going after her on some of her newfound donors, some from Wall Street, of course, on her position on China, on and on. Clearly, they are trying to slow her rise. Uh, but again, the Florida governor trying to make the case that he is the most social conservative candidate in this race. But without a doubt, it was former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie who was trying to get across the point that he believes Trump is unfit for office and Phil that is where uh, he started with your interview with him last hour. Go on. Uh, I just, I, I mean, my guess is that you guys have probably spoken since. Uh, he had a very sharp criticism that I didn't agree with. I will always defend you, Jeff, if it's not related to Nebraska football. Oh, yes, it does appear we are now showing a picture. You guys have had an animated discussion. I assume it was off the record, but if there's anything you'd like to share, we'll take it. No, it wasn't off the record at all. I mean, look, uh, the former New Jersey governor clearly uh, has some urgency in his campaign right now. He went after Donald Trump uh, without, uh, without question during the debate, you know, directly questioning his uh, fitness for office. What he was quarreling with me was saying that Donald Trump was the winner of the debate by not showing up on the debate stage. Christie said that simply is not the case. We will see what voters say. I mean, the reality is Republican voters uh, have not embraced this message. But uh, perhaps New Hampshire voters did. He is leaving here. You saw our conversation there in the parking lot. Very friendly conversation. I've covered uh, him for a very long time, back to my newspaper days. Uh, so look, he is feeling some pressure and he's going to try and make his case to New Hampshire voters. And there are many who uh, accept that argument that uh, they do not believe Donald Trump is fit for office. But the challenge here is the base of this Republican Party, still controlled by Donald Trump, uh, is still supporting him. But not a single vote has been cast in this race yet. So let's take some time, be patient, see how the campaign proceeds through the holidays. But that was our exchange on this early morning here in Tuscaloosa. So I, lo I love the laptop. Thanks for your defense. The, the laptop open, a true newsman, Jeff Zeleny, uh, as always, my friend. Thank you very much. <laughs> thank you, Jeff. We love you. All right. As we mentioned, in a few hours, Donald Trump is expected to be off the campaign trail. He's going to be where? In a New York courtroom in the $250 million civil fraud trial against Trump. Karis Canal outside the courthouse with more. Let's just remind people he is going there at will. He wants to be there. It's not a criminal trial. He doesn't have to be there. He wants to be there. And this is as much political as it is a legal story. Yeah, good morning, Phil and Poppy. Trump will be making his ninth appearance at the civil fraud trial. And as you said, it is not required that he be here. But this trial is about his business. Remember, it was his business reputation that helped catapult him to the White House the first time. So Trump will be attending today. And what he will hear is the testimony of one of their last expert witnesses, a professor of accounting from New York University. Now, part of Trump's defense in this case, or they've been accused of inflating the value of the properties that they own on financial statements that they've given to banks and insurers to get more favorable rates is that they were complying with accounting rules. And that is what this accounting professor is going to talk about today, that how they came up with the valuations for their properties, including the golf courses, uh, is in compliance with U.S. accounting laws. We've heard a lot of expert witnesses on the Trump defense side. 
but this is their closer in a sense, the person that is expected to provide the most comprehensive testimony about the accounting rules. And Trump is going to be here sitting through that. As you said, he skipped the debate last night, but the hallway cameras behind me are, are going to be on. He is um, someone who often speaks to the cameras when he's here. And remember that the gag order in this case has been reinstated. So Trump will be restricted from making any comments about the judge's clerk. And one of the times that he was here the, in recent weeks, he did violate that gag order by statements he made in the hallway before those cameras. So it's going to be a, an intense uh, time here. It, the temperature in the courtroom always rises when he attends. Uh, and he will be here, we expect, throughout the day, throughout this testimony, all leading up to him appearing on the stand on Monday when he will be his defense's final witness testifying for himself. Guys? So, Kara, he's there today. He will definitely be there on Monday. Given we're in the home stretch headed to the Iowa caucuses, how does this play into his schedule in the weeks ahead? Well, Phil, this is just colliding both his um, legal issues and the politics of it all. You know, this case will end next week uh, as far as the testimony goes, but then it will continue into next year. And that is where we're seeing the Iowa caucuses in January. He will be back on trial in a civil case related to E. Jean Carroll, where uh, a jury will decide how much in damages he will pay for defaming her. Then that brings us to February when we expect the judge in this case to issue his decision. That Then we go right into March where we have um, Super Tuesday, and then he will have two of the four criminal trials that he's facing. They are expected to kick off first in Washington, D.C., with the election subversion case, and then that will be followed by the hush money case here in New York. Guys? Garris Canal, live for us. Thank you. Joining us now on all this, CNN senior political commentator, former Republican Congressman Adam Kinzinger. Welcome. Good to have you back. Great to be here. Thank Ooh. you. What did last night mean? Uh, okay, so for somebody like me, I enjoyed watching it because I could pretend like the Republican Party was semi-normal with one crazy guy on stage, kind of like it always. And who's that? I mean, Vivek, of course. Like, the, I mean, the number of, of conspiracy theories he spouted, even from January 6th to we're going back to 9-11 now, to saying the great replacement theory is fine, and we should actually discuss that. I mean, it's a... It blatantly racist theory, but he was the crazy guy. The rest of them, I kind of look at that. It's like, ah, oh, it's like the old Republican Party. But Chris Christie, I, I think he he cleaned up at that debate because he was he was very clear. He acted as a moderator. Uh, he would answer the questions, and most importantly, he talked about Donald Trump. I mean, again, it I, it just blew me away to watch these other candidates unwilling or unable to talk about the front runner in this campaign. I mean, if they think there is some magic pony that's gonna come along and wish him away, it's not gonna happen. You have to take on the front runner. So obviously in my mind, everybody except Chris Christie seems to be trying to preserve their name for a vice presidential candidacy or some cabinet. Do you think that's the, the reason it is yeah. because you wanna be in a Trump administration or because you're saving yourself for 2028? Or well, do you I think, think they both. know that it will collapse their polling because of where the base is. I think it's both. I think Ron DeSantis started out believing that Donald Trump would fall apart when he was indicted. And so his play was to be many Trump. And it was it's actually not a bad maneuver if you thought this was going to happen, where when Trump goes down, you know, DeSantis could come up and be like, OK, I'm just like him. Boy, he got a bum rap. But now come and vote for me because you have no, no other choice. Well, that didn't happen. And that's the point at which you have to pivot. And none of them did that. And Chris Christie, I thought, was very effective. Whether it moves his numbers or not, I don't know. But he was very effective in saying, you guys are running against former President Donald Trump. He's up by 40 points and you can't even say his name. Mm -hmm. 
I mean, you cannot expect Donald Trump to lose a primary if the people running against him are only complimenting him and never saying his name. The issue, the, the key issue in Washington right now about is the U.S. going to give more funding to Ukraine and yeah. Israel or is it all going to blow up because we can't come to a comprehensive immigration reform in a matter of weeks? You have a thought on that. We just had the U.K. Yeah. foreign um, minister on. I was watching David Cameron's interview and I'm like, how come nobody from the Biden administration, including the president, has ever made a case like that? His case was so effective and so simple In and what so way? true. Look, Ukraine is making gains. They've taken back half their territory. They've put the Black Sea Fleet, like nobody ever thought the Black Sea Fleet would be on the defense and basically hunkering in Crimea and trying to hold out. And all they need is more weapons. They've de destroyed 20% of Russia's attack helicopters in one attackum strike that we sent them. When you make those statements to the American people and you talk about the risk and what's at stake, they'll follow you. I've not heard Joe Biden say that case. Nobody from the administration, nobody from my party has effectively made that case, not because it's not there to be made. It's absolutely there to be made. But for whatever reason, they're scared of talking about the importance of American leadership at this moment. Adam Kinziger, thank you. Yeah, you That's bet. always great to have you. Well, a new CNN poll showing over 70% of Americans have a bad view on the economy, how the president is navigating those numbers. That's ahead. Also, Senate Republicans, we were just talking about blocking a bill that would have sent billions of dollars of aid to Israel and Ukraine. Democratic Senator Alex Padilla joins us next to talk about what's going to happen from here. Welcome back. So this morning, billions of dollars in U.S. aid to Israel and Ukraine is looking more uncertain than before. Senate Republicans last night blocking this emergency spending bill, demanding tougher immigration measures at the southern border. We can't let Putin win. It's in our overwhelming national interest and the international interest of all our friends. We're more exposed here at home in the short term than Putin winning in Ukraine. Joining us now, Democratic Senator from California, Alex Padilla. Senator, it's great to have you. Let's listen to something else President Biden said about his willingness to make, quote, significant compromises on the border to get this funding for Ukraine and Israel through. Here he was. I've already laid out in our negotiations with Lankford and others what we're willing to do significantly more, particularly by starting off equipping the border capacity that we need on the border from judges to more border security, in addition to making some substantive changes. But they're unwilling to do it. Senator, what significant changes on the border are you willing to compromise on? Uh, look, well, first of all, I appreciate uh, you uh, replaying the president's statement yesterday that he's already put a plan forward. Uh, and if Republicans were sincere and genuine about truly negotiating a more secure border, they would have voted uh, to begin debate and discussion on that bill. They had a prime opportunity to bring forward their own plans or their amendments to the president's package, but they voted no. They're not ready to genuinely talk. They're not ready to genuinely negotiate. And don't take my word for it. Republicans themselves are saying this is not a negotiation. 
This is a take it or leave it. This is a price uh, for supporting uh, the overwhelming bipartisan uh, supported aid to Israel package and the significantly bipartisan aid to Ukraine package. So this is not the way to go about negotiations and certainly not for uh, policy areas as complex and, and important and consequential uh, as border security. Well, let's talk about one of the key sticking points, and that is the issue of parole, which is, by the way, a policy that Trump used at times during his administration as well. But it's essentially, you know, releasing sometimes to work in, into America those that cross illegally. The really interesting part of all of this is that you've had some Border Patrol officials, including one who testified before staffers, spoke to staffers on your Homeland Security Committee, who said, look, if you don't change parole, it encourages crossings. Let me quote from them. The belief that they are going to be released with no consequences is certainly something that many migrants tell our agents. Why not curtail parole if it is incentivizing more crossings? So, uh, look, we're not saying uh, no. What I've said is the devil is in the details. Uh, and let's also remember that it is not unlawful for somebody fleeing persecution, for somebody fleeing a natural disaster uh, to come to the United States to seek asylum. So whether it's reforming the asylum system, reforming you know, how parole is used uh, by the department, by the president, others, those are, are, are valid policy discussions. That's not what's before us. It's a supplemental budget bill, budget request by the president. Uh, but fine, if this is where we are, let's engage in genuine conversations. Okay. Here's another frustration I've had Poppy, sure. because I've been involved with the negotiation, you know, discussions with Senator Langford and several of my Republican mm -hmm. colleagues. Uh, they, they're, they're trying feverishly to keep it restricted to border. You know, when you talk about immigration, it's like trying to squeeze one end of a balloon. What's going to happen at the other end? There's, there, there's, uh, you know, dynamics that are impacted. Um, if you want to talk about reducing the flow, reducing the numbers of people coming to the southern border of the United States, you got to look at what's pulling them here or what's driving well, them here. And when I put that on the table, they don't want to talk about it. Okay. The only one we'll talk about more Border Patrol officers. I, I, I appreciate the president saying we need more judges, more capacity to hear these genuine asylum cases, yeah. make determinations, you know, who's eligible, who's not. But the last I checked, Republicans are trying to cut the budget, not add resources. I understand you're saying H.R. 2, which is largely what Republicans in the Senate want, does mainly address the border, but you have to deal with it at the root. And, and at the border. But, Senator, just yes or no before we move on to another important topic. Will the Senate go on recess without getting this done, without getting more aid to Israel and Ukraine voted on? Yeah, uh, I certainly hope not. But uh, that's, a, I think, a question for Leader Schumer, Leader McConnell, President Biden, uh, the Speaker, Majority Leader in the House. Feels like uh, it right but now. What I will say is this. What I will say is this. Discussions are not over until we actually solve the problem. Immigration as a whole is something that uh, is way overdue. We haven't modernized our immigration system uh, in decades. But when Republicans come and say H.R. 2, take it or leave it, uh, that is not a genuine negotiation. Do you believe, along with Senator Van Hollen, Senator Welch, Senator Sanders, that there should be conditions on aid to Israel? I think there's a conversation every time there's an aid package of how we're working with our allies on uh, no, but I'm you know, asking the, the you. use of the funds. I'm asking you. No, it's I, a really clear cut within 
among Democrats in the Senate, either some say no conditions or some say yes conditions. Where do you fall? Look, I think there's different ways of imposing conditions. Sometimes it's in the language of the bill. Sometimes it's how we're working with our partners hand uh, in hand to oversee activities. I will insist on this. It's not just military aid, significant humanitarian aid that needs to flow to the region. We need to deliver uh, the significant aid that's needed for the innocent Palestinians that are also victims of the violence uh, in Gaza. Uh, they are the biggest victims of Hamas over the years. Their future is better once Hamas is eradicated. Yeah, well, I think I think everyone can agree on, on eradicating Hamas. To politics, before I let you go, of course, 2024, there's a new CNN poll. It doesn't look good for President Biden. His approval rating has sunk to 37 percent. 71 percent of voters, Senator, do not think Biden is doing a good job on the economy. They view this economy as somewhat or very poor. Are you concerned that may sink his reelection chances? Look, I'm concerned that uh, we need to uh, continue to do better about messaging to voters what we have done to help create jobs, uh, to tackle inflation, which is now down significantly compared to a year ago, to invest in infrastructure that is the foundation for a strong economy, not just next year, but for decades to come. We have a lot to be proud of. Uh, President Biden has been uh, the, the leader on getting all this done, and uh, that's what campaigns are for. Uh, you covering the debate last night. A lot of focus has been on the Republican primary once they have an official nominee, and it's a choice between President Biden and what seems likelier each and every day, Donald Trump. I think the, the, the contrast in the choice is going to be very clear, and we're going to be celebrating President Biden's re-election next November. Okay. It, it is... If it is Trump, though, more Americans think he would handle the economy better than they think Biden would um, right now. We'll see where it goes. Senator Alex Padilla, thank you. Thank you. Have a great day. You too. The pregnant Texas woman denied an abortion. Now she's suing the state, the latest on her lawsuit. And a breeding ground for predators. That's what New Mexico Attorney General is calling Facebook and Instagram. We're going to speak with them ahead. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. What happened today in just hours, a court in Texas will hold an emergency hearing to decide whether a pregnant woman in the state can have an abortion. Kate Cox, who is 20 weeks pregnant, filed a lawsuit this week saying her unborn baby has a genetic condition and carrying the child to term could threaten her life. The lawsuit also says the baby is not expected to live more than a few days outside the womb. Now, Texas law prohibits abortion after approximately six weeks, except to save the life of the mother or to prevent, quote, substantial and irreversible physical impairment of a major bodily function other than a psychological condition. Cox thinks Texas abortion law is too vague, particularly with her condition, and could put her and her doctor at legal risk if she has an abortion. The Texas Attorney's General Office did not immediately respond to CNN's request for comment. A new lawsuit accusing Meta of creating a, quote, breeding ground for child predators on Facebook and Instagram. The lawsuit has been filed by New Mexico's attorney general. We will speak with him in a moment. And it is the latest in a series of legal actions related to alleged harms to young users enabled by the social media giant. According to the complaint, which also names Meta CEO Mark Zuckerberg as a defendant, quote, Meta's recommendation algorithms have created a marketplace to connect pedophiles, predators and others and allow them to hunt for, groom, sell, and buy sex with children and sexual images of children at an unprecedented scale. As part of this investigation, the Attorney General's office created a number
multiple Instagram accounts featuring AI-generated images of children, such as this one depicting Isabi, a fictional 13-year-old Albuquerque girl. And the complaint states that these decoy accounts were served, quote, a stream of egregious sexually explicit images, even when the account never expressed interest in the content. Meta denies these claims and denies that its platforms put children at risk. A spokesperson from Meta tells us, quote, we use sophisticated technology, we hire child safety experts, we report content to the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children and share information and tools with other companies and law enforcement, including state attorneys general, to help root out predators. Meta also says it has removed hundreds of thousands of accounts, groups, and devices for violating its child safety policies. But New Mexico's attorney general says Meta has failed to make sufficient changes, arguing, quote, Meta's business model of profit over child safety and business practices of misrepresenting the amount of dangerous material and conduct to which its platforms expose children violates New Mexico law. And we are joined now by the attorney general of New Mexico, Raul Torres. Mr. Attorney General, thank you for joining us. I think every parent is certainly listening up right now. What remedy are you looking yeah. for? What do you want to protect these kids? Well, fundamentally, we're looking for a culture shift inside of Meta. These platforms are simply not safe. And despite the assurances that we've heard from Mr. Zuckerberg and other executives at the company, both to policymakers, members of Congress and to parents, um, they simply are not doing enough. They're, in fact, misleading people about the danger involved in these platforms, and they have failed uh, to take meaningful steps to correct features of these platforms. They're designed in a way to actually funnel likely uh, victims of uh, sexual exploitation to potential predators, not just in this country, but around the world. You, interestingly, don't just name the company, you name the CEO Mark Zuckerberg individually as a defendant. He posted as recently as 2021, important to me, that everything we build is safe and good for kids. How do you how do you sue for a culture change? Well, we're suing for injunctive relief. We're going to be asking a judge to make specific changes um, to the way in which these platforms organize and feed content. But we're also going to be asking for warnings. Uh, you know, for for decades, we have put um, and required uh, warnings to consumers about the dangers that are associated with products and services. And that's the kind of relief we'll be looking for. What? With respect to Mr. Zuckerberg, he he has been instrumental in, in making misleading comments about the safety of the platforms. And he has had a direct involvement in the features that we think need to be changed. I wonder, before your team filed, this is more than a 200-page complaint, did you take what you found to Meta and ask for those changes specifically? I know you submitted online through their portals these issues and didn't see them resolved, but did you go to them and say, change this or we're going to sue? No, we didn't. And in part because of the experience that my fellow attorneys general have had in dealing with Meta, they've been meeting with them for a number of years on a lot of the mental health components. We just haven't seen any sign um, from from Meta or its executives that they're really willing to engage in meaningful changes. They're doing a lot of things that I think are probably cosmetic, uh, but they're not fundamentally changing the platforms in ways that would make it safe for children. You know, one thing that was striking in the complaint is that in your state of New Mexico, uh, Native Americans represent about a fourth of the trafficking victims, more than double their share of the state population. So they're really being victimized here. My question to you is what prompted this? 
Were there actual cases brought to your office and then that prompted not, a deeper yeah, investigation? Yeah, there, there have been cases in New Mexico and frankly across the country where these social media platforms, Facebook in particular, have been the conduit by which predators have identified um, and targeted young child victims. And so that combined, frankly, with my own past experience as an Internet crimes uh, prosecutor really led me to, to focus in on this issue. I applaud the efforts of, of the attorneys general who filed a separate complaint focusing exclusively on those mental health claims. And we've included that in our complaint as well. But we felt that this was an aspect of the conduct by Meta that, that really needed to be addressed comprehensively. Mr. Attorney General, one thing that has shielded um, these social media companies is part of our law, and that is Section 230 that essentially says they're not liable for what is on their platforms. Do you not see your case and your argument running counter to that? I mean, how do you have that hold up in court when the Supreme Court you know, sidestepped ruling on that earlier this year? Yeah, in, in looking at some of the recent cases out of California and Oregon and other, other places, there's been an evolution in how Section 230 has been applied. Uh, this is really not about trying to hold them liable for the content. It's mm -hmm. about, number one, misleading consumers, and number two, how they have designed this, how they have designed those platforms and organized them. They've actually amplified and, and channeled this content to vulnerable uh, members of our community. And, and so that, we believe, will be a, a new um, approach to how we handle these, what I'm sure will be a, a defense raised under Section 230. Uh, Mr. Attorney General uh, Torres, thank you very much for your time. Of course, we welcome representative from, from uh, Meta to join us as well and discuss this. It's a really important issue. Thank you. Thank you. Well, former Speaker Kevin McCarthy says he's leaving the House of Representatives for good. Congressman Mike Lawler, who defended McCarthy during his ouster as Speaker, joins us next. Also, this. Here's Marshall with Clark trailing. History in flight. You bet! You've probably gotten used to seeing that. A record-breaking performance from one of college basketball's absolute best. I was Caitlin Clark, becoming just the 15th player in women's Division I history to score 3,000 career points. She finished the game with 35 points and helped the Hawkeyes win their ninth game of the season. Clark also became the first player in Division I history, men's or women's, to reach 3,000 points, 750 rebounds, and 750 assists in a career. She's good. Back soon. <laughs> Well, as the cold winter months approach, disagreements over America's southern border policy are threatening much-needed U.S. aid to Ukraine and Israel. Republicans in the Senate blocking a vote to advance fresh aid to Ukraine last night over differences in proposed changes to border and immigration policy. Republicans are calling for tighter immigration laws that would overhaul the way the U.S. handles asylum claims. They also want to rein in presidential authority to allow certain migrants into the country on a temporary basis. Joining us now is Cong Congressman Mike Lawler, a Republican from New York. Sir, on that issue itself... Would you be willing to go home for the holidays if an agreement is not reached here? Look, obviously, I want to get our work done. Uh, the House Republican majority on a bipartisan basis passed aid to Israel uh, weeks ago. Uh, Chuck Schumer, the Senate majority leader from New York and the highest ranking Jewish official in America, has done absolutely nothing on it. Frankly, it's disgraceful. Um, you know, he may disagree with the House's position, but then put a position forward and negotiate. Uh, with respect to the border, uh, here's the problem. This administration has failed miserably to secure our southern border. You're talking about 
Nearly 10 million migrants crossing over the southern border since Joe Biden took office. Many of them illegally. The asylum system is fundamentally broken. These cases are taking two to three years to be heard. And when they are heard, nearly two thirds of them are rejected. You have cities like New York floundering, the mayor coming here today hat in hand, despite his sanctuary city policies. So we need to do something about the border. Chuck Schumer has failed to do anything on the border. House Republicans passed H.R. 2 back in May of this year. You need to negotiate. And the failure on the part of the Senate to do anything uh, on the border is shameful. Well, there are no negotiations that have been ongoing. We'll see if they result in anything. I'm, from your conference itself, the Speaker making clear that he's going to move forward on a, an official vote to open an impeachment inquiry. Are you with him on that? Look, the president said during the 2020 presidential debate that he had no involvement with his son's business dealings, that his family never received any money from China or Russian oligarchs, uh, Romanian oligarchs. That's just not true. Uh, and the information that has already been uncovered is disturbing. Uh, and I think, frankly, uh, you know, folks in the press should be very concerned about what is actually coming out because it contradicts everything this administration has been saying from the start. Can I just uh, put on, me, the, on the actual the question The investigation, itself? with all due respect, the, the, sure. with, with all due respect, $24 million has transferred hands to the Biden family. That is disturbing from China, from Russian oligarchs, from Romanian oligarchs, and Ukraine. Why are people not concerned about that? I, so, I don't understand uh, a couple pieces the, the, here, failure, which I think, the uh, failure the failure to actually ask serious questions. You're worried about process instead of actually asking serious questions about why the president is contradicted by the facts. So now, here's a couple things. To me, the investigation the investigation has been ongoing since the beginning of this Congress. Right. Uh, Speaker McCarthy uh, moved forward with an impeachment inquiry uh, in the same manner that Nancy Pelosi did. The White House is stonewalling and refusing to cooperate. If a vote is put on the floor for an impeachment inquiry, I will support it because the American people deserve to know the answers to the question. Now, that does not mean that we're moving forward with impeachment. And I think that's, that needs to be made very clear. So, but on that point, just for a minute, is I, a far ways I understand off, but the inquiry is important. Having covered several, uh, with the last president, I under two specifically, I understand the process. I know what you're saying. I also know that once you go down this path and have that official vote, there's almost no way you're not going to end up having a final vote uh, on an impeachment inquiry itself or on an impeachment of the president. At least there hasn't been historically over time. Um, to your points about, I think the question that people have as you move forward on this is all of the, the details that you're laying out, our, our reporters on Capitol Hill are covering on a regular basis, none of them have tied directly to the president inside the White House. And the money that you've pointed to going to the family has not been to, tied directly to the president, even before the White House, except for paying a car loan and being on calls, which uh, you can call that objectionable, but you're saying these all things directly tie to the president. Well, with all, with all due respect, you are minimizing what has actually come out. OK, you have multiple shell companies, over 20 shell companies, uh, 24 million dollars that have transferred hands, including a forty thousand dollar, quote unquote, loan repayment. Yet you don't have any of the loan documents. You have over 100 suspicious activity reports that banks uh, all across this nation and around the globe were filing. So 
With all due respect, to act as though there is not information that has come out that clearly contradicts what this administration and what the president has said about it uh, is wrong. Those are two and different things, though. I'm not saying they don't my, contradict from, what the president has said. What I'm well, saying is what, yeah, but, do, what, but what the if the information is has... The issue, Go ahead. the issue is about investigating, okay? And if we didn't investigate any of this from the start of the year, none of this would have come out because certainly CNN wasn't doing anything to investigate it. So with all due respect, the information that has come out this year so far in the 11 months that the investigation has been ongoing is pretty damning uh, and contradicts everything that the president said during the 2020 presidential election. I think he our said folks very have done clearly good, on stage. One thing I'll say. No, I understand what you're saying. He said very clearly on and, stage and I'm, I'm, that I'm, I'm, there was never any that. money. No, no, well, well, Wait a minute. Wait a minute. He said very clearly there was never any money that transferred from China to his family. Do you, based on the evidence and the information that has already come out, including bank records, including suspicious activity reports, was the president telling the truth when he said that? Uh, I think... The, the answer to that is very clear, and I, I don't think I'm not disputing well, what that is whatsoever. The, what is the, well, no, what it is, is the very clear that? that what the president has said has been unequivocal at times in the past, and that has not borne out to be the case. What I'm saying is okay. what some of the members of your conference have said have drawn very specific conclusions about what specifically went to the president in terms of money that simply have not been proven yet. I do want to ask you one more before we go, because I think it's important. You said privately, according to Politico, uh, that the uh, said you supported or, or liked Nikki Haley as, as the Republican presidential nominee. Why wouldn't you say that publicly? Why wouldn't you endorse? Uh, ju- I'll answer that in a second. Yeah. Just on the, on the last point, uh, money clearly has transferred to the president. It occurred while he was out of office. Uh, and so obviously uh, that is different from being in office, uh, which is why I say the inquiry should move forward. Uh, I am not there on impeachment. I've said that repeatedly. Uh, but the information and the evidence and the facts will determine any next steps uh, once the inquiry moves forward. With respect to uh, the town hall where I was asked a question about uh, Nikki Haley and whether I would support her if she was the nominee, I said, of course. Uh, But I've made clear I'm not supporting uh, anyone in the primary. I've not made an endorsement, uh, and I have no intention to. Congressman Mike Lawler. The American people and the Republican voters will determine nominee is take it from there. Congressman Mike Lawler of New York, we appreciate your time, sir. As always, thank you. Thank you. So great interview. All right. In just a few hours, Donald Trump is expected to be back in New York in a courtroom in the $250 million civil fraud trial against his company. And major broadcast networks pay tribute simultaneously to the genius of Norman Lear, the iconic television producer who smashed boundaries, passed away yesterday. Lear's legacy and sense of humor. That's next. In a unique and telling move, multiple broadcast networks, ABC, CBS, NBC, Fox, tributing at the same time the great Norman Lear. It was 8 p.m. last night, and Lear passed away at his home in Los Angeles on Tuesday. That rare joint effort speaks to the iconic television producer's huge influence and legacy over the decades. Shows like All in the Family, Good Times, The Jeffersons, Facts of Life, and Different Strokes. Recently, he worked alongside Jimmy Kimmel to bring a series of specials to a studio audience, recreating classic episodes of those shows. Kimmel, emotional as he honored Lear last night, highlighting his sense of humor. For the holidays, the year before last, my wife and I sent him a shirt. 
uh, this shirt, Norman effing Lear on it. And he loved it. He wrote us a note, a thank you note. I want to share that with you. It said, Dear Molly and Jimmy, I can't believe this sweatshirt. It's something I've always wanted more than I can tell. You guys are the best, and I wish you the dearest, sweetest, greatest holiday season in the history of holiday seasons. Signed, Norman F. Lear. He never said goodbye. He'd say, to be continued and over and next. And so that's how we'll leave it. To be continued, over and next. Norman Lear was 101 years old. What a legend. All right, new this morning, we are getting reaction from U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken on a moment that went viral last month. You'll remember when cameras captured Blinken and making a strained face when President Biden called President Xi a dictator. Well, Gail King and Charles Barkley asked him about it last night. Watch. You had a, how shall we say, a moment the other day, Mr. Secretary, with uh, President Biden in a conversation about President Xi. I know you've seen it because it's gone viral. So we're going to share it with you again one more time just to get your take on it. Roll tape, please. Mr. President, after today, would you still refer to President Xi as a dictator? This is a term uh, that you used earlier this year. So you seemed, you seem, Mr. Secretary, to be having a moment where we've had with very people, with friends that we are close to, please stop talking, please stop talking. What was going through your mind in that moment? Because your body language seemed to say something. I'm not sure what. You know, Gail, I'm tempted to say that uh, we'd had a, a really long day, yes. a very important and intense conversation with China. My neck was a little bit stiff. Yes. And, uh, you know, Been there. That, that happens. But look. As I've said, as I've said before, um, it, it's not exactly a secret that we have a very different system from, from China's. Mm -hmm. uh, president always speaks very clearly, very directly, uh, and he speaks for everyone. Stiff neck. But that's why you want to watch that show, because they're so good at stuff like that, eliciting great answers. Also, MJ Lee, once again, shout With out for asking question. the question. Yeah. All right. Well, tensions ran high. Quite a fourth Republican presidential debate last night. Did candidates chip away at Trump's huge lead, though? Stay with CNN. New Central is after the break. That is it for this episode of CNN This Morning. You can check out our lineup of podcasts and showcasts at CNN.com slash audio or in your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.